Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and I'm joined by my two colleagues, Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes. And yes, we are into 2024 now, gents. Uh, any New Year's resolutions for you guys? <laughs> no, I've, I've, if I've learned anything what would you change? In, in, in my years, I would, I, would, I would basically stick to no resolutions. Uh, I guess my, my, my resolution, if there is one, would be to learn that it's a new year faster. Mm. Uh, stop automatically writing 2023. I, I I was given Christmas cards that wish me a very happy 2025. So, uh, you know, we're, we're all struggling here. I'm, my my uh, resolution's taking it day by day. Oh, the, the, the changing of the sun and the, and the time. It's just, it's such a challenge for us all. But there we are. Yes, we're a year older and we are moving on with the podcast into our bright new horizon. So, yes, back to earth and plenty to discuss. 2024, we're expecting to be well, a big year for the energy industry, a big general election year potentially in the UK. And the government's proposal for annual North Sea licensing rounds is expected to be a point of contention as part of that wider uh, battle of rhetoric. And there's been some discussion of that this week, Andy. Yeah, uh, the week was supposed to kick off with a debate over the future of North Sea oil and gas licensing. Um, long story short, it did not. Uh, but it still kicked off some controversy nonetheless with some political consequences. So yeah, stretching back to November, the government announced plans to mandate annual oil and gas licensing rounds in a move that they said would increase certainty, investor confidence, and make the UK more energy independent. This is part of the King's speech announced in November. And uh, to do that, this is a new bill, the Offshore Petroleum Licensing Bill, that would amend existing legislation to invite applications for new exploration licenses on a yearly basis. So at the time, the proposals were welcomed by the sector, um, but since then, opponents have criticized the move as a political play uh, and as part of this ongoing kind of battle over the future of, of North Sea and the future of, of UK energy, um, but one which, you know, its critics are saying are going to have actual little impact on kind of the day-to-day -day use of energy and, and people's day-to-day -day lives. So uh, the bill would amend the Petroleum Act 1998, adding a requirement for the North Sea Transition Authority to hold annual uh, licensing rounds subject to two new tests. The first is a carbon intensity test. Uh, so that would be met if the carbon intensity of produced domestic gas is lower than that of LNG imported into the UK during the three years prior, I think the three calendar years prior from uh, October this year. The second is a net importer test, which requires that domestic crude gas and NGL production is below the demand in the UK for each calendar year again. So. These uh, tests would potentially, uh, I think people have said it, they look as if they would override the existing climate compatibility checkpoints. That was brought in 2022. Again, we had a long debate around this. This was the sort of uh, stopgap measure in the process of licensing to, to confirm that any new licenses granted would be compatible with the UK's climate agreements. Um, however, the UK government has pushed back on that and said that the measures sit alongside it and that that checkpoint will remain in place. Key difference, though, is that these new tests would be statutory. The climate checkpoint is not. Um, so what does is, what is, what is statutory rather than non-statutory mean? So the uh, the climate checkpoint, I think, didn't alter any existing legislation. So it could be could be changed, it could be amended uh, without kind of much intervention, I assume. This would be as in yeah, right. amending the existing Petroleum and uh, 1898 Act. So uh, the opposition and climate campaigners have criticized the move as a political gimmick. Um, they insist it's designed to mark a divide between the energy policies of Labour and the government, or indeed anyone else who wants to weigh in on energy. Um, that is actually lent some weight by the NSTA itself. There was a board meeting in September in which the uh, board expressed a unanimous view that the mandating annual licenses was not necessary for it to meet its functions. And uh, 
was not necessary for them to meet their principal objective of maximizing economic recovery. Um, Ed Miliband at the time also said, you know, even, even the NSDA have said it's unnecessary and, you know, it's going to undermine the, the, uh, the regulators' independence as well. So, you know, definitely a war of words going on over this. Um, the, the sort of key voice against it from, from the climate sector has been uplift. They've said it's going to do virtually nothing to lower bills, uh, boost energy security or affect jobs. And it said that the new criteria would weaken the already deeply insufficient climate measures as set out in the North, North Sea transition deal and the compatibility checkpoint, basically saying that the tests that are now being added to the statute are even narrower and essentially designed to be impossible to fail. So <laughs> there's, uh, it's certainly been a, a big week, even without a debate on the second. So the, the bill was uh, meant to have its second reading on Monday. Uh, ahead of that, uh, former uh, Minister Chris Skidmore said that he would not continue as a Tory MP ahead of the vote, basically blaming that vote for his decision to, uh, to step down from uh, his role as an MP. This is Chris Skidmore, uh, formerly, I think, universities minister, but also he was interim minister uh, of state for clean for energy and clean growth. Um, he covered for Claire Perry in July 2019 and I think signed in the UK's net zero laws. So kind of a, a temporarily large figure in the net zero landscape. Um, but he also conducted the net zero review under the trust government, which I think was eventually handed in uh, under Rishi Sunak's premiership uh, about this time last year, I believe. Um, so he's essentially also kind of taken issue with this politicization of this annual licensing saying it's unnecessary, saying it kind of it, it's a step backwards on net zero and it, it's a, a purely political uh, game, basically. That was, uh, that was joined by Alok Sharma as well of, uh, of COP26 fame. Um, he said that he would also not vote for it, basically for the <laughs> same idea. He said it was a total distraction and would reinforce the idea that the UK is not serious about tackling climate change. Obviously, in the end, uh, it, the debate on the bill was pushed. So I think from Monday evening, it's now sometime in the next two weeks, we'll see whether those arguments bear out. Um, over the weekend, though, it was very interesting to see suddenly that this bill that I think we'd covered, uh, basically we'd, we'd done a guide for Monday morning for some kind of primers for people to read. But this then became the kind of the Sunday papers talking points around this. So in some ways, Mr. Skidmore's resignation had, I think, the desired effect. Mm, yeah. In others, he's now resigned ahead of a bill that was never debated and possibly some of that capital is lost. I don't know. W what do you make of it? Oh, is it a polit political farce? <laughs> oh, well, there we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think. Look, the the fact that the NSTA, uh, who, uh, as you say, you know, say this is perhaps unnecessary. That if anyone's going to have a, a wide view of the basin and have a a sense of what's achievable, what's required, and what's not required, if if they're saying it's not necessary, I think that's quite telling. I suppose from the industry side, the fact that it's up in the air, as as you say, it's a bit of political gamesmanship. You know. Will there be annual rounds? Will it be case by case? What's going to happen if Labour come in? You know, the, the overriding concern we hear time and time again is that uncertainty kills investment. Um, and yeah, it's a bit of a question mark over what exactly does the near future look like? And I suppose we should also point out, Andy, that um, we're expecting more licences out from the 33rd round, which kind of kicked off last year, but more um, being parceled out in the coming weeks. I think, yeah, we're... we're have heard it's about 80 to 90 licenses in the next few weeks. Um, obviously, I think it was 27 issued in kind of October time. Um, just one other thing, I suppose, that Uplift in, in their kind of uh, analysis of this and, and their contentions are, are slightly critical of whether the, the NSTA will have capacity as well to hold these annual rounds. You know, they have said it's, it's taken kind of months, almost a year, you know, to get these um, current licenses out. We haven't seen, you know, the fully the full uh, release of data and the full release of licenses from that application round yet. The idea that they would suddenly then be able to move to holding these annually, holding that process annually, um, 
alongside a lot of their other extra duties that were, you know, the carbon capture element and sort of hydrogen and, and other elements that they're looking at. You know, it's a, it's a tricky uh, tightrope for them to walk, I think. Was there, I mean, obviously talking about, you know, now we know that there's going to be uh, a sort of an election that's sort of towards the end of the year. Was, was there any sort of a, a a response to the plan from, from, from Labour? I mean, obviously, I think everyone kind of expects, obviously, Labour to win the election. Do you think that... Um, do you think that there, 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 there is a response? I mean, would they immediately roll back the bill? I've seen mostly them sticking to their lines that it is this is a political play. I think in a bill in its second reading, it would be unwise for them to kind of suggest what they were going to do, given that it could be halted. You know, it could be halted at the committee stage. It could be halted in the Lords. Um, but certainly there's a lot of time for it to get through still ahead of a general election, I would think. Uh, I would imagine that they would kind of come out a little bit more strongly on their intentions. Uh, once it's clear as to the fate of this. How it interacts with their plans to end licensing, I don't know. I don't know I don't know whether they would need to, to yeah, strike that down or, or could pass another set of legislation or amend the Petroleum Act completely to say we're stopping this from now on. I'm not sure what the kind of yeah, their next steps would be. Um, but certainly they have they have sucked to their guns on the, the fact that they don't think it's uh, at all what the government should be doing. Yeah, yeah, and, and and not to not to bring us into a whole other you know twenty minute debate. I mean, I guess we should maybe just question: is it is it a good idea or not to have annual licensing rounds? When we've spoken about this before, you know, oil expect exported to mainly European refineries, but obviously we import much of that back in as refined products. Gas is used domestically. You know, maybe a, a gas focused annual round because you know presumably the balance of any deficit would come from US LNG, which is has a higher a higher carbon footprint, but I mean the, the the consistent messaging is from the industry that we're in decline. We might as well use what we have rather than import for the products that we need. I think that's true. I think uh, you know the, there's the, the government again has, has stuck to that line around the the um, emissions impact of of UK uh, production versus certainly imported LNG from the likes of, of US and Qatar. Um, Uplift, however, <laughs> points out that you know Nor- Norway's pipeline gas is. Is even uh, lower emissions than ours, so it depends on what metrics you're using here. Um, they also have done their own analysis, which they say I think that the any licenses issued would would generate as much as something like four days annual gas use. So that's still a relatively small amount. I, I don't, I haven't seen the analysis myself. That was something that was put in their briefing notes. Um, so you can have to do your own homework on that one. But certainly they, they maintain that the actual impact on that would be relatively small. Therefore, this is again, a, more about sending a message than about actual production. I mean, that, that carbon intensity uh, test of the, the last three years of imported LNG feels like uh, if, if, if the North Sea can't produce uh, gas at uh, less carbon uh, emissions, fewer carbon emissions than uh, the last three years of, of imported energy. That feels like something is, has gone seriously wrong. Mm. Like that just feels like you're, you're automatically going to, to pass that test. Again, it seems very much about sending the message uh, in that <laughs> regard, does it not? The, by the, <laughs> about where the UK sits versus uh, those other supplies. But the fact is we will need those other supplies too, right? I mean, that's that seems to be the reality that for a lot of the projections. Um, and so, yeah, where where you sit on that? I think again, this is this Rorschach test thing, right? It's if if you if you're all about us sending the message around the UK serious about net zero, then we shouldn't be doing this. If you're all about the kind of energy security side, then it's it's a no brainer in terms of you know that frame of frame of mind. Um, we will see whether those issues are borne out. I think in the debate, 
should it be held in the next two weeks. Okay, thanks, Andrew. I've got a feeling we'll be back to this uh, before too long, but let's uh, let's leave <laughs> licensing there and move on to aviation next to discuss the state of helicopter safety in the UK. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, so 2024 shaping up to be quite a big year for the helicopter industry, particularly the safety side. We've got some big regulatory changes, big milestones, some big reports we're expecting through the year. We also have a major supply chain crunch facing the industry, lack of S-92 spare parts globally, uh, which is seeing some helicopters being grounded. And Norway this week said that that could impact some of their oil production. So OE UK's um, health and safety report published at the tail end of last year highlighted that 2023, we're now a decade since the last fatal helicopter crash in UK waters for the offshore energy industry. Anyone who's been paying attention uh, or can cast their mind back to 2013 and, and prior to that, a, a spate of fatal helicopter crashes involving the Super Puma uh, helicopter model. Um, and the last one to take place was uh, the Sumbra Super Puma crash, which killed four people. So we picked up that milestone 10 years without an incident, um, not including the Churoi 2016 crash in Norway. Uh, and some experts have, you know, we kind of asked them what they thought. Uh, and clearly the overarching message here is, uh, no, no, we need to make sure that we remain vigilant. Lessons from history here. We had a nine-year, 10-month gap from 1992 to 2002 without incident, and that was followed by a series of them throughout the 2000s. And this all comes, you know, we have seen fatals in other parts of the world, in the US and Arabian Gulf, um, well publicised during 2022 and 2023. We came very close to a fatal in the UK sector just last year. Um, Storm Auto, the Elgin platform, people will recall uh, seeing the footage of the helicopter blades flying off whilst the helicopter is kind of, you know, parked on the Elgin platform, 100 mile per hour winds and the, the, the blades didn't just snap off, they kind of flew off towards the platform. Uh, and that, uh, as we later found out, was whilst two people were on the helideck trying to secure kind of the helicopter and the blades down. Um, an Elgin operator, Total, they conceded that someone you know could have been killed and we're waiting on an air accident uh, investigation report on that uh, soon, I believe. So the backdrop, you know, all that's going on. The UK is still seen as kind of best practice, says Steve Robertson of Air and Sea Analytics. Workers going offshore should feel safe, uh, you know, going out from UK um, bases. You know, nonetheless, you know, we know that helicopter operators are under a degree of pressure, cost pressure. The competitive pricing in the UK in particular is playing a bit of, it could be playing a hand, you know, or at least we are seeing the effects of that in terms of the company results. And we have this global spare parts issue in Norway, uh, which I said, you know, Norway's energy minister said this week it could cut their production. 
Other milestones, uh, 10 years this year since the regulations came into place, which saw basically meant that extra broad workers, you know, workers getting measured up. And if you're a certain shoulder width, you have to sit beside a, a large helicopter escape window. It's 10 years since that came into play. So we'll be scrutinizing that. Um, and that's only just coming into effect again in Norway this year after a series of delays. It's also um, 15 years in April since the 2009 crash off Peterhead. Uh, Super Puma went down, killing 16 people on the way back from the BP Miller platform. So, you know, thoughts very much with the, the families of, of those people as we approach that anniversary. So, you know, we, we've reached this milestone 10 years. It, it should be marked. Um, but I think the, the overall call uh, is for vigilance because we need to just, uh, you know, this remains a, a very dangerous aspect of the the energy industry. And um, as I say, there will be plenty to discuss going into the into twenty twenty four, given what's uh, what's been going on. How much do you attribute the kind of move away from the super puma to to the I suppose change in safety, but also then the, the narrowing of this market into the the S ninety two, which seems to be the kind of workhorse now of pretty much every oil and gas market that that I'm aware of. Certainly, yeah, I I, th I think I think. Certainly, my recollection of it was the the Turoi twenty sixteen crash was being the I guess the the straw that broke the camel's back uh, in terms of you know this is just one too many incidents. I don't remember how many there had been prior to that, but certainly there had been a series um, of fatals and you know other ditchings um, uh, in the lead up to that. And I think that's you know when we saw the the groundings, um, you know the the workers. I, I mean, I remember Jake Malloy of RMT basically calling them flying coffins. Um, so uh, you know, basically, workers in the UK, I remember, were just point blank saying, "I'm not, I'm not getting into that anymore." And Norway, uh, you know, that they've they've almost exclusively moved to S92s since then, which has its own kind of raft of issues. You know, it's a reliable helicopter, but if there was anything to go wrong with it. Um, then you're basically exposing the entire industry to we don't have anything, and, and and let's not forget, you know, we're talking about energy security in the last piece. Norway plays a huge role in terms of the energy security of not only the UK but wider Europe. You know, so you know if if the, the, basically what's going on now due to this spare parts issue I mentioned, you know, the Norwegian energy minister is saying, okay, look, we're talking to Sikorsky about getting more parts. We're talking about maybe adding more to the fleet. You know different types of helicopter. Like the UK's got different types of helicopter, which kind of makes us more resilient. Um, but yeah, basically they're very exposed um, to you know should there be any issue with the S ninety two, and it seems that this uh, spare parts issue uh, is creeping in. So certainly that, that that's a logistics issue. But yeah, I, I think I think basically the the Turoi, uh Norway crash in twenty sixteen that that was the, str the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the end of the super pumas in the UK and Norwegian sector. Okay, we'll leave helicopters there and fly on over to Namibia with Ed after this. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, 
as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so some uh, happier fare now with Ed uh, and some big moves in Namibia this week. Yeah, so uh, the the Orange Basin, which has obviously become really the sort of the uh, the heart of uh, Total Energy's uh, sort of exploration plan for uh, 2023 and, and, and 2024, um, has, has obviously thrown up a lot of uh, discoveries, both for Total and for Shell. And uh, this week, uh, Galp also announced that it had discovered a significant column of, of 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 light oil quite what the numbers are when we're, we're not yet sure but but it's, it's it's pretty clear that there's a lot of interest in the area and rightly so it seems you know to keep on sort of you know throwing up these these kind of major discoveries obviously given this uh, sort of spate of uh, exploration success thoughts are inevitably going to the next step so um total is working uh, in on its uh, venus and other discoveries uh, with a with a with a small company called Impact Oil and Gas, which um, has got a couple of uh, sort of stakes in Namibia, some 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 bits in uh, South Africa, but obviously, Total, one of the largest companies, uh, largest oil companies in the world, Impact, uh, much much smaller. Um, there, there, there is inevitably a sort of a mismatch there, uh, which which you know looking ahead was going to kind of cause some problems. It's long been thought that that the impact, you know, couldn't continue holding that stake given that 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 kind of scale of challenges. Just to kind of put some 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 broad numbers on it, um, a, a project off Angola got approved last year, and that was about eight billion dollars. Um, so probably something something in this sort of that sort of a ballpark uh, to kind of you know move ahead with some sort of a Venus development. That would be my kind of you know rough uh, rough guess. Impact, obviously, tiny company, no prospect of, of, of paying its sort of 20% share of, of, of sort of billions of dollars. Um, so obviously, that was going to pro- provide some sort of a, a, a break on development. Um, Hoskin, which uh, is, is is one of uh, Impact's uh, owners, has, has been talking about sort of selling down its uh, Impact stake in in this uh, fine for, for for some time, about a year or so. And finally, this week, um, the, the the news came out that Impact had had reached a sale. Rather interestingly, it, it's not selling to an, to an external party. There's no kind of new kind of uh, entry of a super major. Instead, Total and, and probably Qatar Energy, which is the other uh, which is the other kind of player in that Venus development, um, have agreed that they will come in. They're going to pay Impact back for historic costs. It's I think ninety nine million dollars, and they're essentially going to provide a loan to carry Impact through from now until First Oil. When first oil comes, we don't quite know. Um, 2027, 2028, something like that feels like that would probably be a sort of a, a, a sort of a fairly safe assess- assessment. But it feels like this is clearly going to kind of open the way to allow that big development to move forward. So it's um, it's sort of another step forward, I think, for the for for this uh, orange basin, and it's it's really kind of you know removing another roadblock to to development. The Namibian president was uh, speaking uh, for in his New Year's message, and he said that 2024 was going to be the the year that we you know, sort of start to see some of the these kind of you know discoveries and developments, some sort of um, shape kind of playing out to the uh, to the to the to the oil industry, and I think you know we're kind of seeing that now. Um, so so Shell. 
has now um, said it's going to release its uh, drill ship um, and, and to give it some time to, to assess its options. It's made, uh, I think, three or four discoveries. Um, Total uh, is continuing drilling at the moment. Uh, with with it's got two drill ships. It's 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 holding onto its uh, drilling ships for this until at least the end of this year, I think. So it really feels like we're going to start getting some numbers. Uh, we're going to get start getting some sort of uh, line of sight about that that next sort of step about moving towards the sort of final investment decisions, which obviously for Namibia will be transformative. I mean, Namibia it's a tiny country. Um, you know, very little in the way of sort of, uh, you know, real industry. They've got a bit of mining. They've got some green hydrogen hopes. But clearly, um, a sort of an, an, an oil boom would be transformative. And obviously, in you know, sort of maybe some some comparisons with, say, Guyana, where obviously the kind of the, the economic outlook has been transformed as a result of, of Exxon's fines. And there's been there's been some sort of, you know, sort of similar lofty hopes sort of set out for Namibia. Yeah, I mean that that was my next kind of question. I mean this this is all basically brand new to Namibia, right? I mean a total oil well, it looks like as you say a total oil boom and and a chance to, to massively enhance their economy based on some of the figures I'm looking at here. Um I mean talk maybe talk a bit about the challenges around that Ed. I mean I'm guessing there's a lot more infrastructure that they're going to put in place if everything plays out the way it seems to be shaping up very positively. Yeah, so I mean I think I think certainly uh you know as you say there's going to be you know going from a sort of a standing start to uh developing you know a sort of a world scale oil field will uh, one let alone the number of sort of potential developments that we're looking at. Obviously Shell's got its plans Galp has, uh, as I said, you know, mentioned this 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 week uh, that its Mopan uh, discovery looks like it may may be commercial. So that you know, maybe three. Chevron is also working there. Woodside has got some plans that we're going to see more drilling this year. So there's going to be a sort of a, an incredible kind of scaling up of of those opportunities. So yes, there is uh, going to be an, a need to to rapidly expand uh, you know Namibia's ability to provide port services uh, how local content's going to work the uh, Namcor has a stake in each of these fines I think it's about 10 percent um, how is it going to have the ability to see its uh, its its kind of share kind of coming through and then of course I mean I think also there there are kind of technical challenges so Shell's finds is, is kind of in, in more modest water depths, but it's still pretty deep. Venus is, um, I think, sort of 3,100 meters, something like that. So, which would be the deepest uh, development, I believe, that would go ahead. There are some in the Gulf of Mexico that are sort of near that sort of area, but I think Venus would be the deepest. Quite how Total would kind of move ahead with this. It would have to be, an, obviously, an incredibly large field to make it commercially viable. And then the sort of the technical challenges, you know, the FPSOs, the the drilling, uh, sort of subsurface infrastructure, it's all it's all it's all kind of piling up to be a, a, an incredible uh, challenge to the industry. And for impact, I mean, how historically, how, how does a company of that sort of size and scale end up sitting on what is, I think, one of the biggest finds off uh, West Africa? In recent, certainly in recent years, potentially ever. Yeah, and you know, does does this mark their arrival, or do you see that you know, is, are they a bit of more of a liability given this sort of loan situation? Well, so I think I mean, it's it's a sort of a fascinating move, isn't it? So essentially, Impact now has that ninety nine million dollars back that they've sort of spent historically, and they're going to be carried through to first. Start. And they but they still have a sort of I think it's nine point five percent stake. So 
when they get to first oil they will have to repay the uh those the, the kind of the loan essentially that they've been given um so from from total and presumably qatar energy so they will have to pay that back but then once that has been paid off uh they will be sitting on a sort of a 10 percent stake of you know a massive uh, at least one massive development potentially more so for, for for impact it is transformational i mean i think there are obviously kind of questions around you know so we're in now 2024 i say looking at the uh, the calendar to remind myself what year it is but you know so, <laughs> say they start producing in 2028 that's sort of four years time what you know they do between now and then do they sell down that stake to somebody who might want a sort of a, a, a kind of that kind of option on future cash flows do they keep on, you know, they've got some other sort of exploration opportunities. Do they redirect that cash back to those? Um, and also, I think, you know, the kind of the other thing is that uh, Impact is essentially owned by two larger kind of, uh, well, larger, not to the scale of, of, of Total, obviously, but there are two, two other companies. So there's a South African company called Hoskin and there's uh, a, a, another company called Africa Oil, which has got a stake in uh, a, a, some oil projects in Nigeria with Total. Africa Oil has got this sort of history of, of sort of portfolio investments. So it's invested in eco, um, it's invested in impact, it's invested in Africa energy, I think. And, and so it's it's sort of suggesting a potential way forward. So I think obviously now we'll be looking at, you know, where next for these kind of other kind of smaller companies that might have transformational opportunities. So another of those kind of portfolio companies, Africa Energy, has a stake in uh, Brill Padder and Lipid, which was some big discoveries made by Total, Oshaw, South Africa, a couple of years ago. South Africa obviously is an incredibly challenging place in which to make progress. There is, you know, more in the way of sort of local infrastructure, but politics are incredibly complicated, much more so in many ways than Namibia. So potentially, you know, uh, South Africa has been talking about it needs gas, Brilpad and Lipert, world-class kind of gas discoveries offshore. Obviously it makes sense to develop them. Total has the means. Could we see something similar playing out for Africa Energy? Africa Energy, I'm sure, would like that. Africa Oil would like that. Would the South Africans like that? You would have thought so, but sometimes it seems incredibly unclear what the South Africans actually want from their energy sector. Okay, really interesting stuff. Thank you. And and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thanks to Ed and to Andrew for joining me. We're off to work out some New Year's resolutions for us all. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.